everyone. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. This is the Fueling Creativity and Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel the more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. And this is our final debrief episode of season four. When we say final debrief, we have two debriefs in a single session, which means we're debriefing our final five interviews of season four. Now, in this format, Matt and I will share three key insights we have had from the last five episodes. All right, Cindy, so kick us off with your first insight. So my first insight comes from Victoria Waller's episode on creating success for children with learning differences. And aside from being inspired by Victoria's infectious passion toward children, it also sparked this insight on the importance of something my good friend Barney Salzberg taught, which is about thinking with your hands. I think we spend so much time focused on learning through cognition and reading, but I felt like Victoria spoke so much about making and igniting that spark of interest through making, like when she was talking about making dolls and making Lego structures and making things out of boxes. And I can tell you, Matt, after I listened to that episode again and again, I decided to head to my local Joanne Fabric store to create something, which was a gigantic Halloween wreath. And that sort of sparked everyone in my family to say, I want to make stuff. And we spent the whole weekend creating stuff and using the makerspace in our house, which hasn't been used for a very long time. What a wonderful story. And I certainly can relate to being inspired by Victoria's energy during that episode. And one of the things that I took away from Victoria's discussion was the importance of the parent-teacher relationship. Victoria spent a lot of time talking about interests. I think there was a point in the interview, in fact, maybe multiple points in the interview, where she said that every child has an interest. And of course, that's a gateway that can assist teachers when it comes to engaging them in the curriculum. But of course, it sometimes can be a challenge for teachers to identify those interests, particularly when you've got so many students in the class. And so in the interview, I had highlighted the importance of teacher-parent conferences, and we as parents need to make sure that we're also communicating and sharing information with the teacher about the things that our students are passionate about, the things that we think they might be interested in learning when it comes to topics that is being covered in class. Of course, there's times in the year when teachers might be more able to accommodate that feedback, but the big point is making sure that we do recognize that we can share information as parents. And in fact, I would go as far as saying it's important that we do that to support the teacher as well. Matt, I would love to hear your first key takeaway. Well, Cindy, my first takeaway came from our discussion with Savico, who, as a reminder, is a program manager at Play Africa. And within her program, she utilizes design thinking to promote active citizenship. Now, I'm not going to be talking too much about design thinking, but I am going to be touching on this concept of active citizenship. And then also another thing that we spoke a lot about, which is play. Now, we haven't really spoken too much about play on the show, but of course, play is such an important tool that we all utilize, children and parents, to imagine new worlds, imagine how ideas might look like in implementation. But, you know, one of the connections that I made was how play can help children imagine a better future when it comes to citizenship. Because from their perspective, we might not always be doing a great job. And 
it suddenly brought me back to my uh, eldest imaginary island, which is called Coconut Island. And he's going to absolutely hate me for referring to it as an imaginary island. And I will point out that, that Coconut Island is very elaborate. Its position in the world has stayed constant. It's in the Indian Ocean. It's close to Madagascar. Its climate is really fascinating. It is impacted by hurricanes. It is impacted by uh, snowstorms. And then also it gets a wonderful tropical weather as well. It's got one of the largest mountain terrains and Mount Humanus. It has a volcano. And then also it seems to suffer from every other issue that exists in the world. But what my son does is he utilizes his imagination and through play begins to try and work out how these really difficult issues that impacts a society and our role as citizens to try and address those issues collectively play out on Coconut Island. And I think that's really fascinating to me. And it's something that I hadn't really thought about until I engaged in the conversation with Savico. Some quick examples. When it comes to energy conservation, he talks a lot about the way homes are built in Coconut Island to conserve energy and to be more energy efficient. He also talks about the role of citizenship. He doesn't use these words, but he talks about how people in Coconut Island, for example, are really good at recycling. They're also very good at reducing waste. Their diet seems to be conducted in a way that doesn't lead to overfishing, which is something that Coconut Island is very famous for, is all of the kind of wildlife that they have in their ocean. Coconut Island is also home to one of the largest technology companies called Lunatech, and they make a whole bunch of different devices. And he's actually designs these devices, and sometimes he actually even sells those devices at school. He doesn't actually sell them, but people ask them for the latest Lunatech technology sometimes. And we was talking one day about gender equality in society. And the next day he came down and he said, Daddy, I just want to tell you something. I said, what? He said, Lunatech has just hired the first female CEO. Isn't that exciting? And still to this day, he talks a lot about Lunatech having the first female CEO of this really large company. So the reason why I bring this up is, yes, I think we all can engage more in play. And I think the other piece of it is that I think it's a, it really is an, a useful tool to help children potentially design a better future when it comes to the role of citizens and how we engage in society. Oh, Matt, I just love that. And I haven't met your son, but he just sounds so wonderfully endearing and sharing all that and thinking about those things in such deep and meaningful ways. And I really believe that play allows us to practice what it's like to be in the world. And I love hearing stories about children using their imagination like that to build those imaginary worlds to make sense of it. So I think we really need to encourage this as much as possible, not only in children, but with teachers and administrators. Let's make time to play. Let's make time to imagine. Let's make sense of the world through our imagination. So thanks for sharing that story. No worries. Any excuse to talk about my son. So what was your second takeaway? So my second one has to do with Michael Hansen, who talked about participatory creativity. And aside from loving to say the word participatory, because it's fun to say, I love the alliteration of it. I thought this perspective of the systems approach and working together on idea was really powerful. I often hear the word from colleagues and friends about legacy and they want to have a legacy. And every time I hear that word legacy, it sort of makes me wince because for me, it feels ego driven. I don't know how you feel about the word legacy, Matt, but people say, oh, I need to leave my legacy. And I think, really? I don't know about that. Are we going to be remembered someday? Probably not. But when Michael was talking about how we might be good ancestors, that definitely shift my perspective in a positive direction. Because yes, I want to be a good ancestor, not only to my children and my hopeful grandchildren, maybe, but to the world. Like I 
I want us to think about how we might be good ancestors and leave the world a better place for future generations. And I know that's something that both you and I feel passionate about, Matt, that we can use creativity to make the world a better place. And it's about being a good ancestor now. So I don't know how you feel about the word legacy and ancestors. What do you think? Wow, Cindy, what an absolutely awesome takeaway. And if I confess, I completely forgot about this concept of ancestors, which was part of that discussion with Michael Hatchett Hudson, which was such a loaded episode, by the way. And we've, you and I have had so much back and forth about that episode. And you know, we've just recorded our episode with Dr. Edward Clapp, who's going to be the first episode of season five. And he is a collaborator with Michael Hatchett Hudson. And he was talking about this concept of a biography of ideas. And I think that relates to this idea of ancestors, because everything has a history and we have histories as well and taking this concept of being a good ancestor there are values that i'm installing in my children there are behaviors that i promote in my home environment and we should expect that those values and behaviors are going to have an impact on how they go about parenting in their home environment and therefore i am probably going to shape how my grandchildren you know see the world and engage in creative activities and it's possible that those same values might then go on to influence their children which of course would be my great grandchildren so suddenly i'm feeling like i have a huge responsibility to be a good ancestor right now and then of course we can flip it the other way i look at some of, of my creative activities particularly around writing and i associate with my mother who really like to write as well and she talks a lot about her creative activity coming from her father and suddenly you start realizing that the type of ideas and value systems that you implement are also shaped by your ancestors so being part of this kind of like ancestry system is a really interesting concept that i'm going to go away and think a little bit more about so thanks for sharing cindy love it All right, tell me what your second takeaway was. My second takeaway comes from our discussion with Albert Schneider. Now, I was really excited about having Albert on the show because he was able to offer a corporate perspective of creativity thanks to his kind of 30 years plus of service to IBM. And I think there was a lot of of things that came up that were very similar to past episodes. But the thing that really resonated to me with that episode, or at least the thing that I went away and thought about is... IBM is a company known for generating many of the world's patents, but what Albert shared in that episode is that not many people know that many of these patents are built on existing patents. And so it like builds on this concept that, I'm going back to the episode with Jonathan Plucker, do we ever start off with a blank canvas? It's, it's how we build on each other's ideas and how IBM recognizes that and looks to facilitate interaction with other people so that we can exchange in the sharing of ideas. And hopefully by exchanging in the sharing of ideas, we have an opportunity to produce new ideas that then obviously can go on to form new patterns. And hearing that from a business perspective obviously relates to so many of the things that we've spoken about, the importance of collaboration. And in fact, Albert talks a lot about the diversity of thought, but also highlighting the fact that quite often creativity isn't about one person real real world creativity really is about interactions with other people yes and it goes back to that ancestor piece as well so you know it's about connecting it's about the system all you can start to see everything connected that we're talking about and i love the social cultural theory in season 1 when we spoke with Vlad Glavino because when we're talking about these different elements how we participate in a particular social context our interactions with other people 
how we're perceiving events taking place are all part of this ongoing system of constantly producing and modifying and tweaking, as as Albert spoke about, to create new things and new outcomes that we create to address the problems that are in our environment. So I can see all this overlap and connection between all these different conversations we've been having. Absolutely. And I think social cultural theory is becoming such a prominent approach in the field of creativity studies. And also, as you would expect, a big topic of the discussions that we're having on this podcast. But without getting any more into the weeds of that, what's your final takeaway, Cindy? So my third one it has to do with Laura McBain and Ron Baghetto's discussion on my favorite failure, because that one has sat with me. And I've listened to it over and over again. And I think what particularly struck me was the difference they spoke about between mistakes and failures. And the way they framed mistakes was that mistakes happen when you're by yourself. The explanation that Laura gave was you made a dish and it turned out you burned it and you threw it away. That was a mistake. So only you experience it. And then you move from it. And a failure is anything that is social that someone else might see. And I really struggle with that because I see mistakes as something as small and a failure is something that is large. And so I've been playing around this idea of a chart with an X and Y axis where you would plot the impact on the X axis. So whether what happened is something small versus something big. So it shows the actual impact of that mistake or failure. And then the y-axis is witnessed by. So have you have yourself at the bottom and the whole world sees it at the top and you can plot where it happened. So you imagine something happens by yourself, but you see it as something that's big. So you plot it on that xy chart. So I think on this chart with what, whatever happened, the mistake or failure happened to you and you had that experience. And I think another, another piece of it, and I don't know how to plot this on my xy-axis, Matt, but is the vulnerability you experience. Because I think the higher the vulnerability and exposure you feel, the more you feel the failure. And I think that's the bigger piece of it is that emotional vulnerability that happens when you've made a mistake or you feel like you failed. What do you think? Yeah, and I've really enjoyed the exchanges we've had since that episode on this topic. And that the first thing that, that I'll pick up on is this concept of impact. And there's different ways to which we can explore the word impact But I think that the idea of how does the outcome impact me relates to that vulnerability piece because sometimes the outcome of failure is some really powerful emotions that we experience. And those powerful emotions may make us resistant to going about in similar activities in the future. But sometimes also the impact that comes from that outcome might affect other people. And so that also can heighten the perhaps embarrassment that we feel, the shame that we feel, the disappointment that we feel. So I think that there is a relationship between impact, how we perceive events, and then obviously the way that provokes the emotion. And I certainly agree with where you're heading. I think in some ways it's less about how the outcome is experienced by others per se, and really more about how you're interpreting the outcome and the emotions that that you're feeling. And I think the other piece that I would pick up is in that episode, Ron and Laura spoke about like the goals that we set for ourselves, the expectations that we have for ourselves. And sometimes when we're working in a new environment, we don't have enough information about that environment to set realistic goals. So we can find ourselves sometimes setting unrealistic goals. I think a really good example is when I'm teaching my boys to ski for the first time, I think that they set the goals that by the end of the day, they're going to be like doing the black run and like doing the moguls and things like that. 
And you can't blame them because they haven't experienced skiing before. So they don't know how hard it is. They don't know what's realistic when it comes to putting on skis for the first time. And I think that with exposure to skiing, they're able to kind of get a better idea of, hey, actually, that's an unrealistic goal. But the first time that they fall down, they're going to be really disappointed with themselves. Perhaps they will be embarrassed. They might be shamed. If people look at them, they might interpret the look the wrong way. And of course, then as a parent, you have to deal with that situation where they come over and say, I don't want to do this anymore. Can we go home? And so I think part of this failure piece is helping students and young children to recognize that when you go about doing something new, particularly in a new environment, you've got to set realistic expectations for yourself. And sometimes the realistic expectation is that because you haven't done this before, you actually are going to fail. You're going to mess up. You're going to fall down. And the focus of the learning in that moment should really be about how you process those feelings and get yourself back up as opposed to just going out there and letting these unrealistic goals take shape. That's some of the stuff that I continue to think about. And I think it, it just relates overall with what you've brought to that episode, which was an absolutely fantastic episode. I agree. And I think that the skiing example is a great one, Matt. So thanks for sharing that. So let's hear your final one. So my final one also came from Michael Hatchett Hansen, but a different part of the interview when he was focusing on the concept of change. And change within the system. And I found that really fascinating because I'm sure everyone can relate to going about trying to implement a new idea, develop a new idea, and then running into problems with the system. An obvious idea I think sometimes might be associated with the cost of the idea or the time you need to develop the idea or the resources that you need for the idea are not available. And and my takeaway from this discussion is really just recognizing that quite often there are systems in place and we have to be mindful of those systems when it comes to actually going about developing the idea and implementing the idea. We don't want to make too many assumptions assumptions about the system. We shouldn't necessarily expect that the system will accommodate our idea. That doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't challenge the system, but we should just be mindful that part of the creative process might be problem solving how to actually bring this idea to fruition. It's a great point, Matt. And I think if we frame that in terms of bringing creativity into the system, so I know a lot of our educators who are listening, they listen because they want to bring creativity into their classroom. And some of your structures will allow for creativity to be brought in naturally, to be brought in deliberately, to be brought in with joy. And others of you who may be listening may find that there's a lot of constraints, but our recommendation is to aim for those small changes that you can make because those small changes can make a huge impact on your students. So if you find that system is holding you back, just keep trying small things that can help make that big impact. I'm really glad that you brought that up because that has come up quite a few times in episodes where we've spoken around the concept of teacher creativity. I even remember it coming up for the first time in season one with our discussion with Casey Luthrop. And this idea of teachers as designers, the idea of actually trying to design inside the box. And in that box, there are those constraints. And starting small is something that a few of our guests have suggested to teachers. But also it's about asking questions of your environment. It's being sensitive to making assumptions. And just, dare I say it going back, recognizing that sometimes you might fail because of the system, but by but that instant of failure, you can turn it around and know more about the system. So when you try and implement the idea again in the future, you're better equipped to make it a success because now you're familiar of what you can and can't do within that box. 
So that wraps up the final debrief of season four of the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. As we look towards season five, we are asking you if you have the time to please go and review our podcast on your preferred platform and also sign up for our monthly newsletter. Next week, we will share some of the exciting guests we have joining us on season five. So stay tuned. And if you have any questions or thoughts about this episode or past or future episodes, please reach out to us at questions at fuelingcreativitypodcast.com. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Werwood.